Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. What's what's multi-cloud mean to you? Is it just that you're operating in more than one cloud? Okay, fair enough. How's that going for you operationally? If you're on the infrastructure side, how's, how's life in multiple clouds going for you devs? Sponsor VMware suspects that multi-cloud is going... Not seamlessly for either group. In fact, the VMware folks are here to highlight something new in IT, multi-cloud services, an emerging category of software designed to make your IT team's multi-cloud reality easier to cope with. Well, well, what do we mean by easier? I'm going to let our guests explain. Joining us today are Kit Colbert, CTO at VMware, and Amanda Blevins, America's CTO at VMware. Kit, I'm going to throw the first question to you. The, the, the big idea that you want engineers to think about here is that of, again, this multi-cloud services. So give us the elevator pitch at a high level. What are multi-cloud services? Sure. Well, essentially, we see that every business out there, almost every business is using multiple clouds and oftentimes struggling to manage the complexity across these clouds. And the complexity comes from the fact that they're oftentimes leveraging single cloud services across each of the clouds having to sort of reinvent the wheel for different solutions like security, performance management, software supply chain, et cetera. And that necessarily leads to this sort of chaotic environment. The solution is to leverage services that are consistent and available across clouds, i.e. multi-cloud services, to simplify that environment. So that's a quick elevator pitch. Now, the reality is there's a lot more nuance behind that that we need to dive into. There is a lot of nuance. The first thing that jumps out at me is like how to define multi-cloud because there's so many definitions out there. And I like what you said that in your estimation, we're really looking at companies that are using a single service in each cloud or maybe would you also say running a single application instance in each cloud, not necessarily one application spanning multiple clouds? Yeah. Yeah. We don't see it oftentimes where there's a single app literally spanning multiple clouds. Usually it's a company that has different lines of business, each of which is using a different cloud for their apps, or maybe a single line of business that's using, you know, different teams within that line of business using multiple clouds. Um, and so the reality is like, while a single app may be in just one cloud across all of your applications, you've got them in many different clouds. And the, by the way, when I say many different clouds, that's not just public cloud, but also inclusive of data center and edge as well. Right, right. Now, I'm going to throw the next question over to Amanda because we want to hear from you. Um, how do you find multi-cloud services fitting into VMware's larger view of IT service delivery? So, you know, VMware's platform, vSphere, NSX, vSAN, also known as Cloud Foundation, when we wrap lifecycle management into those capabilities, uh, you know, that's the best platform out there for enterprise applications, whether they're traditional, some folks like to call them heritage applications, um, or for modern applications, because Kubernetes is built right in. But you know that is not the only platform that people choose to run applications on. And so they might uh, have you know, native virtual machines or native container services and public clouds. They might use those public cloud services. And that's okay, because we want to be able to provide different capabilities to folks for all of their applications, whether they're running on vSphere-based platforms or not. And so there's multiple layers in which we need to provide capabilities, not just the infrastructure layer, but also security and application services and end user services. And so that's why it's important to us to be able to have capabilities across all of those layers. So if folks are running on vSphere platforms, great, we can give them capabilities there. 
But if they're running on non-vSphere-based platforms and using native public cloud services, they can still take advantage of what we offer. So implicit in what you just said, Amanda, then, well, not implicit, you just, you said it straight out. We're defining multi-cloud as including something I could be running locally in a traditional vSphere environment. That's part of multi-cloud. Yeah, absolutely. Like Kit mentioned, you know, multi-cloud means that it could be a public cloud provider and that could be a hyperscaler. It could be, you know, something you're doing more of a managed service or a colo. And that's also private cloud and at the edge. So a multi-cloud service then would include managing uh, things I'm running in public cloud and uh, all of my local, my local traditional compute stack and then managing them universally, I guess, or centrally from one set of tooling. Is that possibly true? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, you know, what, what we can offer. Mm. And when we talk about multi-cloud services, we think of them in those layers that I mentioned around end user and security and application and infrastructure. So you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this optionality and choice. And we want to make sure that folks realize that we're saying you don't have to always use a multi-cloud service. You want to do what's best for your, for your business and for your technology department, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's certainly great use cases where you do want to have a multi-cloud service to manage applications and workloads in all of those environments. Yeah, I think it's important to <clears throat> look at some specific examples there, right? So for instance, a single cloud service would be something like Redshift on AWS, data warehouse, um, only available when you're running inside of AWS. So that's kind of a single cloud service. <clears throat> um, you know, you look at something like Snowflake and Snowflake is very much a multi-cloud service because they have, they can instantiate their databases on AWS or Azure or Google or all three. And it's, you know, I think to, as Amanda says, there's no right answer. It's not like the single cloud service is inherently better or worse than the multi-cloud service, but it's about being thoughtful about what are the use cases that you're trying to go after. And for some folks, maybe it is that, hey, I want to just use the best of breed and maybe Redshift is that for me. That's great. Other folks may say, well, I actually want to standardize my data management across my apps, across clouds. And so they could go with you know, something like a snowflake in that case. So I think it's, it's you know, one of those things where we want to give businesses optionality and how they consume those technologies. Right. One thing that jumps out at me, a layer that is probably feeling a lot of frustration with the introduction of cloud is security, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I think about the traditional security, they might've tried to lock things down with firewalls and policies in their internal data center and cloud kind of messes with all of that because the tools and processes they had that worked really well <laughs> on that internal data center, uh, cloud kind of threw that out the window You know, once people started swiping credit cards and standing up their own applications. So how would you approach security from a multi-cloud services perspective? Yeah, it's one of the focus areas uh, that Amanda mentioned. And again, what, what you see is that folks will generally go in, leverage the cloud-specific tools to try and lock down and secure each of the clouds they're using. And what you find is that that's just very duplicative because you got to spin up usually multiple separate security teams, one for each cloud. Yeah. They've got to specialize themselves in those cloud tools. They have to re-implement all the different types of security, um, either you know connect, connection security, uh, user access security, uh, software supply chain security. You know, the list kind of goes on and on. And it's exactly there where, you know, VMware is doing a lot uh, in terms of our cross-cloud services uh, focus on things like Carbon Black or what we're doing with Tanzu around software supply chain security. 
So the idea is that we can enable a business to implement, let's say in this case, software supply chain security. They can do that once, have a common CICD pipeline, common implementation, common security checks, uh, you know, CVE scanning, et cetera, across that. And then at the end, it can deploy either to AWS, to Azure, to Google, what have you, right? But there's that one sort of common way of approaching, in this case, supply chain security. So I think that's a great case, a great example, right? And again, like we just mentioned in the in the data warehouse example, uh, it's one of those things where some customers are going to want that standardization across clouds. And this is exactly what we're providing to them. I think to a certain degree, security in particular, uh, as someone who has tried to write IAM policies in the past for AWS, <laughs> those are wonderfully complex, <laughs> that terminology, and Having some other tool that can provide a management plane for me that simplifies a little bit of that and already has the knowledge built in of IAM policies and also the knowledge of how Azure does it with Azure AD and how Google does it with their auth and their IAM product, that would be really nice because I don't want to have three separate experts, which is essentially what I would need to operate across those three clouds. Right. And no, I think you're hitting on the thinking behind this. So... You know, if we take a step back, what we really see here is that we as an industry are trying to elevate or adapt our architecture or technology architecture to this new landscape. Previously, or in the current world, I should say, people only really have these single cloud services at hand. And so they have to necessarily duplicate this, you know, getting, getting into the depths of IAM versus Azure AD versus whatever. And what we want to offer is this ability to say, hey, for some of the stuff I would like to drive consistency. And as we mentioned earlier, they still may want to, so let's say that they do drive consistent security, consistent software supply chain, but they still may want to enable their developers to leverage best of breed services across cloud. If that developer says, hey, I need a great ML service, maybe they want to go to Google for that. Or maybe a different team says, well, actually this, you know, SageMaker, whatever it is on AWS, that thing's like the right one for me. So it's about um, being thoughtful around what you standardize and what you allow your developers or operators to get best of breed across clouds. To add into that, you know, Ned, you mentioned... I would have to have three different sets of subject matter experts to be able to manage that. Mm -hmm. And that would be true across any of those layers that we talked about, right? You might need three different teams to manage Azure, AWS, and GCP infrastructure, or application services, or, you know, other things, security services. And so that's where bringing in a multi-cloud service also allows folks to be able to have access to and manage and learn new skills that will apply across multiple clouds. So you'll be able to increase the efficiency, the efficiency of your IT teams. Right. But, so you're but, you're, consuming. but you're not arguing for an either or. We're not saying I don't need to worry about the big three and their specifics anymore. Um, we're saying multi-cloud services has a role. And if that role, if what that provides, those common sets of services that I can deploy across the big three and wherever else is good enough, use that. But it could be that I need to dive into Azure for some specific reason. That's also possibly true? Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's, that's where that optionality and choice comes in. Like a good example might be you have multi-cloud services implemented at the infrastructure layer where you're able to manage multiple Kubernetes clusters across different clouds using like a Tanzu mission control. 
but then your data scientist team really wants to start using Google Analytics services and BigQuery and other things to do ML and AI. And it wouldn't make sense to build an entire abstraction layer just for that single use case. So you would allow them to access those services directly rather than having a multi-cloud service. Yeah, I think what it goes back to is what, what's, what's the business case? What, what is the business requirement? What do you need to go and do, right? So for instance, you know, we look at a lot of customers who want to uh, get out of the data center and move to the cloud. And obviously trying to do that, moving directly from the data center to native cloud uh, services like, you know, EC2 and so forth, oftentimes requires a lot of application modernization, modification and so forth. And that can be very expensive and time consuming. And so we, at uh, VMware, we, ha- we offer this consistent infrastructure. You can get vSphere in the cloud, just like you have it on-prem. You don't need to modify the apps. And so that sort of multi-cloud infrastructure service can then be leveraged in support of that business requirement to get out of the data center. And we've seen a lot of customers go and do that. And then you can modernize applications later, right? Um, and so I think it's really just tying it back to the business requirement saying, what do I really need to standardize on? And, you know, by the way, just be, to be really clear, like, you know, VMware's point of view, we offer these cross-cloud services across many different areas, app platform, management, infrastructure, security, networking, end user, right? But we don't expect that someone's going to be necessarily or that everyone's necessarily going to be using all of those to completely <laughs> abstract the underlying cloud. That's not the point, right? The point is to thoughtfully weave these services in as well as leveraging really great public cloud services that support your business use cases. Do you consider multi-cloud services a new category? Because it sounds like to to me, to a certain degree, we're sort of retreading old ground that we already had in the data center in previous years. For instance, there was a time when I had my Dell servers and I had my HP servers and I had maybe another vendor in there and I treated them all as their own separate physical objects. But then virtualization came along and said, I now have this instead of a multi-cloud, a multi-vendor sort of thing that we're laying down on top of it. But there's still what, so I'm just kind of wrestling with, is this a new thing or is this just an old idea that's being applied to a a new perspective? It's a bit of both. Um, So you're right. There there is, um, you know, like we had to abstract in the virtualization days across different types of servers, different manufacturers, et cetera, OEMs. Um, we now have some similarities there across public cloud. I think uh, it is also a new category, again, because initially when people went to cloud, there was this assumption that, hey, I can just go to one cloud. And so I don't need a generalized solution across clouds. I'm just going to use one so I can leverage the cloud specific services there. I can use all their primitives. I can build up my own sort of internal platform, et cetera, using that stuff. And that was the mindset that went into it. And then, you know, somehow either through an acquisition that used a different cloud or a line of business going out and doing their own thing, you're kind of using multiple clouds. And each time you're like, I think people said, well, it's just a one-off, it's a special, somebody special case, another solution there. And it's just kind of this natural evolution of the industry, right? Where you just kind of have this proliferation of one-offs until such time you're like, okay, well, now we need a more general solution. And so I think that's exactly where this concept of multi-cloud services is coming from. Well, so let's talk about the generalized service and uh, and lock-in because we could argue that multi-cloud services, it, it frees a company from cloud lock-in because I've got this generalized service that I could deploy across multiple clouds. Hey, no more cloud lock-in. 
But am I not locked into the multi-cloud service provider instead? Because now I got to talk to those primitives to get the work done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, folks always talk about lock-in. And um, I think regardless of what technology that you choose, you're going to be locked into something at some layer. And so that's where you want to decide, you know, where is it most efficient for me to learn a technology and how can I apply that knowledge and those capabilities to have the largest impact? And do I want to do it that way? And so, you know, if you talk about a multi-cloud service and being quote unquote locked in there, at least you're not interacting directly with an individual public cloud. And so if you choose to replace a multi-cloud service with something else, it's not like you're taking all the work that you did for native AWS and native Azure, native GCP and vSphere and OpenShift and whatever else, and then having to redo that across different clouds. Instead, you would just be learning a new multi-cloud service. So I, I don't think that there's a, an example in technology where you say, if I choose a solution from this vendor or this cloud provider, I'm no longer locked in. You know, people might say Kubernetes might be the, the one place, but even there, you know, there are different networking requirements and different yep. security capabilities and how do I operationalize this and what's the management, et cetera. So you're still going to add in different things and where Kubernetes is more of just, hey, we're providing the runtime. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, one thing I would say, because it is an interesting debate around uh, lock-in and what exactly that means. So here's the way I think about it. I think about it that you're going to make a technical decision on what to take a dependency on. And that could be an open source technology or it could be a product from a company. And then you're kind of dependent on that company to some degree. Now, as a, a product or an outcome of that decision, it's going to give you a certain uh, set of uh, degrees of freedom, certain set of optionality, right? That you can take. And so the question is, what sort of optionality are you looking for? You know, specifically when you think about multi-cloud services, yes, you are taking a dependency on that multi-cloud service. And that may be an open source thing. It may be a company you know, whatever it is, but you're doing it in service of this optionality across clouds and, and support across clouds. <clears throat> and so I think that's really the way to think about it. It's like, um, where, am I, where am I making a commitment on something and what do I get out of it? And that's kind of how I would think, you know, because it's interesting. One, one other example I would give is I talk to a lot of customers who have this mindset of, oh, I don't want to get locked into any vendor. So I'm going to do everything myself. And they're out in the open source world and they're building this happen with OpenStack and so forth. And what they don't realize is they spend all this time, they hire all these people, they do all this stuff, they customize all this thing that maybe is perfect for them. But the reality is that they're a snowflake. It's like the only one. And so now they're locked into themselves. And is that a good thing or not? Right. And so it's like that you can't, you know, there is no technical choice you can make that gives you every degree of freedom. You're always going to make trade-offs around what degrees of freedom you want. And I think, you know, we use this term called cloud smart uh, last week at explore and this notion of going from cloud chaos, which is where we are today. A lot of single cloud services, a lot of duplication, to cloud smart. And that's really about being thoughtful around how you weave in these cross-cloud or multi-cloud services with the single cloud services. And I think to some degree, it goes back to that notion of being thoughtful around what degrees of freedom do you want? And sometimes, you know, as we talked about, you want that awesome ML 
service from whatever cloud. And you are making a trade-off saying, well, I don't have as many degrees of freedom. I can't just uproot and go to a different cloud. But maybe that's okay because that service is so valuable to you. And so I think it's just being thoughtful around that. And um, as I said, evolving the architecture to give you more options on how to move forward and what degrees of freedom you can have. Following up on what Amanda was saying, something else clicked with me too, which is the word efficient. I, and I can think of efficiency in this context in a couple of different ways. One is operational. If I can generalize a service, standardize a service that I only need to interact with the multi-cloud service to deploy it, something as straightforward as a EC2 instance or equivalent across clouds, I'm more efficient if I just interact with the multi-cloud service operationally to do that. Do it one way, predictably the same way every time done. And then economically is the other way because different cloud services cost different money, uh, amounts of money, depending on what you're deploying and what the context is and all the rest of it. Figuring out a way to do that most economically efficiently is desirable as well. So again, you know, Kit, you had said trade-offs and so on. That's one of the things you can, another way that you can win here going with a a multi-cloud service. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Um, I think it's, the reality is that we are, we are seeing a lot of inefficiency in this, what we call the cloud chaos phase, <laughs> because <laughs> there is a lot of duplication. There's a lot of duplication of technology and of teams. And originally, it was funny, you know, cloud very much offers a lot of efficiency and speed and all this sort of stuff, but you got to do it intelligently and thoughtfully. And I think that's where a lot of people have gone wrong because they kind of built up this technical debt from the way in which they've adopted and embraced cloud. I think they tended to think of cloud as a place and not a way of operating. And in reality, the cloud is more about how you operate and how and the processes that you put in place than it is putting your computer storage in any particular place. Because I can run a horribly efficient data center and 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 have things you know falling apart and not following a strict process, or I can run an extremely efficient data center and be. Uh, more competitive and more cost efficient than I would be if I ran in one of the big public clouds. So it's all about the way it's my operational model more than it is the the place where I've actually decided to place my workloads. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, by the way, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing is that we, we, we talk about this term multi-cloud service and yeah, it's a new term and everything, but what we're seeing is like pretty much every company is realizing this kind of chaotic state they're in. And you know the, the whole evolution of what, what, what is typically called a platform engineering team or platform operations team, those people are building multi-cloud services. They don't really know it. They don't call it that, but they're trying to build some consistency across clouds. And so I think people naturally see the inefficiencies that are there and naturally try to respond to it. But today it's done in a very ad hoc fashion. And so I think what we're saying is we want to get an industry shift, industry movement going to this new multi-cloud services architecture to allow so that people don't have to be doing it as a one-off or an ad hoc. They can leverage standard building blocks for that. It's interesting that you just mentioned standards because I want to get your your thought, both of your thoughts on this. Uh, one of the things that really enabled the modern internet was that there was a set of common standards adopted across all these different providers, Right. And we haven't yet seen that common standard emerge across multiple clouds. Kubernetes is probably like the closest thing we have to it so far. So do you think there needs to be an established cross-cloud standard to get to what you're what you're looking for? I like to look at the business model of the different cloud providers, right? So yeah, at the beginning, we talked about how VMware, you can run your workloads on our platform if you wish, and that can be on-prem at the edge and 
hundreds of cloud providers everywhere. Or if you choose not to use our platform, we have other capabilities that will bring value to your workloads running with native services and public clouds. But if you look at the business model of AWS or Azure or GCP, their goal is to get your workloads in their data center, full stop. They don't want your workloads running a different cloud provider. They don't want it running on-prem. They don't want it running at the edge. They want it running in their data center. So I don't, I don't think that it's in some company's best interest to even create or follow standards because then these workloads could be portable. They could leave these data centers and that would be have a negative effect to, to the revenue. I don't know, Kit, what do you think? Well, look, I mean... Um... Yeah, I think there, there's a certainly a business model aspect uh, that you're hitting on, Amanda. I mean, I would say that as an industry, we do need standards. So if we're putting aside that there's a reality today about business models and all that, I would say from an industry perspective, we absolutely do need some sort of standards of interoperability here. Like <clears throat> we're imagining, again, this architectural shift from just using single cloud services to using multi-cloud services thoughtfully mixed in with those single cloud services. Now, as part of that, we very much realize that those multi-cloud services will come from multiple vendors. Like we at VMware do a bunch of stuff, but we don't do everything, right? We're not, you know, doing data warehouses like Snowflake or databases like, you know, Mongo or whatever. <clears throat> but uh, but we do have a lot to offer. Nevertheless, you know, we've got to make sure that um, there, there's clean sort of interoperability. Like, what does that decomposition of functionality in terms of multi-cloud services look like? What are the right categories for them? How do those different things interact? What about like core issues like identity um, or, you know, permissions, RBAC, that sort of stuff? How does that work across all these services? So I think a lot of that stuff has not been solved at all. and it's completely wide open today. And so you're right, there's things like Kubernetes that are kind of there, but I think there's a lot more we can do to define that. And it's something that you know VMware is very interested in doing. We actually put out, you know, Amanda and I put together this white paper trying to define, okay, what is a multi-cloud service and what types of multi-cloud services are there and how should they interact? You know, so some of the kind of basic sketches of what this interoperability should look like. And the goal there was just to put out an initial viewpoint but the hope is that we can engage the broader industry and community around figuring out together what this looks like. And then, yes, creating more of those interoperability standards. I think there's also an opportunity to, you know, what Kit was talking about of how these services should interact or might interact. I think that's another opportunity to create standards where, you know, not, not every multi-cloud service will have the same API, Right. But if there is a if there's an approach where if I have a multi-cloud infrastructure service, it does these things and returns these capabilities and will do these functions. If I have a security service, it will do these things um, and it will respond in this way and provide these functions. And so if we at least have this set of standards, then I know when I'm going to employ a multi-cloud service in my environment, I know what capabilities I'm getting. Um, and that way, when I do my automation or my CICD pipelines or I'm training new folks, I have a good idea of what I'm working with. So that might be a good place to start, because like Kit said, this is this is wide open right now. To, to a certain degree, we have some of that, like to go back to the Kubernetes example, like the container image format is a well-defined standard that everybody follows and, you know, container runtimes yeah. as well. So 
you can feel fairly confident if I build a container image, it's going to launch properly on any of the public cloud offerings. And if you're running Kubernetes on-prem, it'll launch there too. But if you go to something like identity, where it's this, the, the differences between the clouds and the way that it's implemented on-prem, probably through Active Directory or something, is so wildly different, I don't know how we get to a standard on that easily. Yeah, that, that's definitely a challenge. And I think... You know, you, we talked about security earlier as well, and identity access management can be a, an aspect of security, but folks are very interested in zero trust architecture. Mm. And so zero trust architecture is probably the, the hardest thing to achieve because you have to do all this inventory work beforehand. You have to understand where are all my users, where are all my devices, where are all my services that run on those devices and those users consume, where do the services live on-prem, public cloud, et cetera, et cetera. And so there needs to be even more evolution in the multi-cloud security space where one, the identity access management, two, the connectivity and the security you know, between that, but also be able to achieve zero trust and how to help with that inventory and observability and everything else that needs to happen there. So identity access management, yes, very hard. And then you expand that into a, a process and concept that folks want to implement today, like zero trust. And it just becomes very, very, very difficult. What would you folks say to an engineer, let's say an infrastructure engineer, someone on the ops side of the house, and they're going to argue that uh, that Terraform and a flexible CI/CD pipeline that that's all the abstraction they need to handle this multi-cloud thing? Is that are we talking about multi-cloud services? And we talk about Terraform and a CI/CD pipeline, or not really? Uh, I mean, th- those are both examples of um, of multi-cloud services. You could argue, right? Um, <laughs> That you know, Terraform. It's uh, it's about management, provisioning, etc. CI/CD. It's a secure software supply chain type thing. But obviously, then the question becomes: Okay, well, so you push your workload out there, and and maybe use Terraform to kind of create a landing zone in your cloud, uh, configures things. You use CI/CD to push out your apps. Okay, the apps there, it's running. Maybe it's secure. Is it secure? I don't really know. Hopefully, Terraform. You configure Terraform right. Um, but how are you going to do that on, on an ongoing basis? You know, how do you get an alert if there's some sort of security issue? How are you thinking about performance? Are you thinking about cost management? Uh, how do you do connectivity? That app's not going to run by itself. It's probably going to connect out to something, either your users or some, some other apps. Um, you know, what, I mean, Terraform and, and, uh, and the CICD are fine, but how are, like, what, what are developers doing? Do they, are they building just for that one cloud or, or what sort of experience are you giving them? Are you giving them a robust set of curated tools that can work across clouds that can allow them to go to the cloud they want? So anyway, this list just kind of goes on and on a problem. So I think it's, you're right that those things are types of multi-cloud services or multi-cloud capabilities, um, but they're a, a tiny part of this very broad picture that any sort of enterprise needs. I would almost call those multi-cloud tools rather than yeah. cloud services. Services, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's why I went with capability. You're right because there's not really mm-hmm. a running service, but I, I think they they do hit on that point of <clears throat> something that offers consistency across clouds, right? Which is really what we're getting at when we talk about a multi-cloud service. I could see a multi-cloud service offering a Terraform provider, so you can still use Terraform. If you Precisely. Want. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now, what about a developer moving to, you know, the other side of the DevOps uh, dividing line? A developer might come along and say, you know what, 
I got Kubernetes. That's all I need. I can, you know, make use of all the different uh, uh, custom resource definitions and all the operators I can throw into Kubernetes. Why, why do I need anything but Kate's after, after today? <laughs> so, you know, Kit talked about the secure software supply chain example before, right? So absolutely, the developer could say, oh, you know, I built my my YAMLs, et cetera, et cetera. And I've you know, built my code. And now all of a sudden, finally, I get to deploy it to test or production or wherever it might be. But then now my company's governance and security and other you know, privacy requirements, did I meet those? Uh, did I even think about those? You know, did I create security issues uh, when I deployed? And so if they go through all that and they deploy a workload to Kubernetes, and then the rest of the teams have to go back and start from the beginning and perform all their checks and do the rest of the configuration and provide observability and how do we handle DR and, and all these things. We haven't progressed in how we've done applications since you know, traditional monolithic applications. It's still the same processing. So if we have that secure software supply chain where not only developers could be using Kubernetes or something else, they might be using public cloud services, but I've built in all the other capabilities and security and governance requirements that my enterprise has to run an application. That's going to be a lot more beneficial for everyone back to efficiency, but also it means that I can write my code, check it in and see it run in production. And I probably don't have to take care of the rest of the, the Kubernetes stuff in the background. I want to revisit the topic of security here because in my brain, it feels like this insurmountable problem for a multi-cloud service to handle because of identity. Uh, so how, how would a multi-cloud service tackle a global, a global abstracted view of identity across clouds? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think there's a general answer to that one yet. As you can see, you know, we're still early in this. And I think what we're doing is sketching out the general direction that we need to go. But I think identity is going to be one of the hardest ones. So let's talk through it, right? So an organization is going to have some sort of identity within uh, each of their clouds. And so each cloud, you're going to have an account and that account will be linked to some either, you know, developer, user, team, et cetera, within the company. And so you're going to need something to sort of manage that sort of identity translation and permissions translation uh, against your own uh, set of capabilities internally, your own identity systems, et cetera. So the, the mapping solutions there, you know, um, you know, we actually, with the launch of ARIA uh, last week, uh, ARIA guardrails helps to do some of that stuff. Not a complete solution on the identity front, but helps to, to do so, some of those capabilities and, and mapping there. So that'd be like one example, but there's not necessarily a general purpose identity solution yet um, for the industry. So I think that's, again, something that we're going to think about when we think about standardization, when we think about interoperability. Um, but, you know, I think you can... You don't need to boil the ocean either, as I said. Like so, you can take really concrete problems. For instance, you, generally speaking, you do not want to allow your developers to manage public cloud account credentials, right? You just don't want to do that because they're going to accidentally check it into GitHub, and then some hacker is going to find it. Next thing you know, you're going to have a lot of Bitcoin mining happening <laughs> using your accounts on these public clouds. <clears throat> it happens, you know. No one likes it, but it's kind of a thing. So what you do is you provide these systems that can manage those account credentials seamlessly. And so you log in using your corporate credential into that system. Then it has cached 
the account credentials for AWS, Azure, et cetera, and can log in on your behalf and do some of these actions. So again, those are like these kind of translation services I just mentioned. I think that's kind of a way of getting around it, at least initially, but I'm sure there'll be more advanced things. I'm sure, you know, whether it's AD or some other type of Azure AD, other type of things that could come to play there. I've been doing some work recently with OIDC and JOT tokens and, and dealing with all of that. And to a certain degree, that does seem like a way to interconnect a lot of these services together and implement that zero trust is to set up this trust between a token issuing service and then a service that that relies on it and can validate the tokens that are passed between it. So it's almost like the token is kind of becoming the identity at this point, mm. as opposed to something like traditional Active Directory or yeah. or something like that. Uh, another thing that that recently was uh, ratified, maybe is the right term. I'm not sure. W3C just approved the standard for decentralized identifiers, which is probably the most interesting component of that sort of Web3 ecosystem that's out there. So I'm really curious to see what happens with the decentralized identifiers and having a multi-cloud solution that supports identity. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And I'm, you know, honestly not an expert on identity myself. We've got a lot of experts within the company <laughs> that know a lot more than me, but yeah, there is a lot of federated identity and now it looks like decentralized identity stuff. And so, you know, I, I think this is again, going back to the interoperability standardization topic is just something that we as an industry need to figure out and get everyone aligned around. The other thing the MCS, the multi-cloud service seems to do is makes it easier to consume across multiple clouds because it's it's placing a certain level of abstraction between you and how it's actually deployed in any of those given clouds. And sometimes that's really good because I just want to make the thing go run. I don't want to deal with the minutia of each individual cloud. I don't want to have the three subject matter experts teams uh, analyzing everything. But at the same time, you need to know when it does make sense for that abstraction. So what would you recommend so that people can stay up to date or how should they approach designing architectures before they leverage one of these tools to determine, yes, I need that abstraction or no, it would be better to go native. Yeah, there's sometimes in, in IT, we have this, this approach where we buy a tool rather than create the process and then <laughs> implement a tool for the process we created. And I think we're talking about the same thing here, right? So we need to determine from an infrastructure and security perspective, what is it that we need for our applications to run and be secure? Right. Like, do we need certain type of performance and to meet that performance? What will provide that you know, virtual and even physical hardware? Because, you know, laws of physics still apply. And then there's the software architecture itself, where you know, one of the examples at the very beginning was a distributed application, one application that runs across multiple clouds. Or maybe when a developer is first building their, their cloud native application, they're only building it for cloud native services in one availability zone, in one location for a public cloud provider. And so there's different um, constraints that come in with either example. So if I'm building an application for a single availability zone, if that goes away, of course, my application is down. In the past, We've had things like virtualization and DR, like DRS and vMotion and all that stuff that can take care of the fragility of an application. But now if I'm using infrastructure of public clouds, they don't always have those capabilities. So now the application architecture folks really need to think through, how do I make sure my application is resilient? 
And there are, you know, hundreds of other design considerations that do need to go into building an application. So once a company or an organization or an enterprise has, has determined, you know, these are my design decisions. This is, this is how I'm going to do my, my infrastructure when, app, when an application looks like X. This is how I don't need to do my infrastructure when an application looks like Y and it's distributed, but the application needs to have these characteristics. Once that is all defined and then you choose a multi-cloud service, you can use that multi-cloud service to set those guardrails to make sure that the application that needs more infrastructure resiliency or more location resiliency is met when it is deployed through that multi-cloud service. And if it is not met by that, you know, that multi-cloud service can be that check. So it could prevent it from being deployed and running in a way that would cause an outage or, or less resiliency. I hadn't thought about it that way. You're describing, I mean, I'm thinking of a multi-cloud service mostly as a, as a tool, a deployment tool to get something done. And, it, and if you know what you're doing, you can get it done with the tool. But what you're, you're saying here, you can actually build some kind of architecture policy guardrails around the mm -hmm. service that you're building so that you have the resiliency that's required for a given application. Uh, yeah, that's ah, correct. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I would take it a step further and even say that uh, depending on how the multi-cloud service is designed, you don't have to only leverage one cloud. And as mm -hmm. new clouds or new services come available, there's a bunch of alternate clouds that are developing out there that aren't the big three that offer very interesting and flexible ways to deploy your application. If my MCS, my multi-cloud uh, service is able to go, okay, it's running on AWS today. You want to migrate it to this alternate provider. All you have to do is click the migrate button. It's kind of like the V motion of apps <laughs> for the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, like you said, building in those guardrails. And if the multi-cloud service has the intelligence to be able to, or, you know, or you can define those guardrails for the multi-cloud service. And then the multi-cloud service itself has the intelligence to assist in placement. You know, then we don't need the humans to be making those decisions if we've already <laughs> set up those rules and those processes beforehand. So that when the multi-cloud services, Ned, you want to move a 28 terabyte database around <laughs> the world, it's going to take a week and a half. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an interesting conversation. I know it is a bit future looking and thought leadership kind of a thing to understand where we're going here with multi-cloud services, but it also feels like we're already seeing, I mean, more than hints of this in the industry. There's niches where products like this have been deployed that are perhaps networking specific, let's say. I mean, this technology, the need for this sort of technology exists and it's only getting bigger. So if I'm an engineer listening to this podcast and I know multi-cloud services are coming, how, how do I skill up for that? Should I still be focusing on AWS and Azure, et cetera, like those training programs and certifications, or should I step away from cloud specifics and focus on some kind of a multi-cloud service product offering that might be coming? How do I, what do I do? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So the landscape is definitely getting a bit more complicated here with single cloud services, public clouds multi-cloud services, you know, I think it, it's, it's going to be dependent on the role that you have to some degree. But what I would say in general, we're, what we're seeing is the need uh, for greater breadth, oftentimes over depth, meaning you can go 100, 200, but maybe not 300 or 400 level uh, for every cloud, but you're also getting that 100, 200 across the multi-clouds, uh, excuse me, multi-cloud services as well. And again, it depends on the role. Some people you're going to have to, like every organization is going to have to have some experts 
in AWS, Azure, you know, whatever public cloud you're using, as well as experts in the multi-cloud services you're using just to, you know, debug those like really hard problems. But I think for a lot of folks, you're going to see them needing to be generalists where they have decent knowledge and can work their way around a lot of these different systems. I think it's also helpful to consider, you know, we use virtualization as an example before, and the reason that folks were immediately excellent at using virtualization is because they understood physical servers and installing <laughs> operating systems and drivers and firmware, and they had all of that experience. And so if you think of virtualization as an abstraction layer, and then you correlate that to a multi-cloud service being an, an abstraction layer as well, if they understand enough about the native public cloud services they might be abstracting or they have that control plane for, then they'll be better at using those multi-cloud services. So I wouldn't shy away from learning, you know, the basics, maybe intermediate levels of most commonly used public cloud capabilities and services and platforms and things like that with the intention of being able to take all of that knowledge and apply it to identifying and using a multi-cloud service in the best possible way. Yeah, that makes sense uh, to me. Knowing specifics isn't going to hurt you because even if you don't, even if the, the specifics that you learned aren't the thing that you're implementing day to day, the concepts that you learned, figuring all that, all of that out is going to apply to the multi-cloud services world. So there's nothing stopping you from continuing to go after AWS and Azure and GCP certs if that's what you want to do. That knowledge will be valuable in the multi-cloud services world. The concepts you pick up are going to be directly applicable. So that's all going to be a good thing. Uh, so uh, VMware folks, I know there's a, there's a white paper I think we mentioned earlier in the show. I just wanted to highlight that again. If folks want to download that and read that, what, what are they going to get? What's in that white paper? So it's it's really, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's our first foray into trying to get a crisp definition for a multi-cloud service. And then also an initial take on the taxonomy of multi-cloud services out there, i.e. what types of multi-cloud services are there? How do we categorize them? How do we think of them? How do they relate to each other? So this is really the first step in a much longer journey to mm. try and define that sort of standardization and interoperability that we, that we talked about. Um, and the hope there is that this is not something we just put out there, but something that we put out there and then people engage with it, talk to us about it, give us feedback, and then we can really start an industry discussion around it. Very good. So the link to that white paper are going to be in the show notes, which you can find at day2cloud.io or at packetpushers.net. And our thanks to VMware for sponsoring today's episode of Day2Cloud covering multi-cloud services. And hey, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, Ned and I would love to hear them. You can tweet at us at Day2CloudShow, or if you're not a Twitter person, eh, we get that. Go up to Ned's website, nedinthecloud.com. He's got a form there, and you could submit your content ideas there. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, I know you do, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development, so just, just go, go get you some. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. Thank you.